Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Emily Tate. Today, we're talking about the spread of automation and its effect on the workforce. And okay, you might be thinking, oh no, not another big takeout on how robots are stealing our jobs. But this isn't one of those conversations. We aren't speculating about how bad it's going to be or how soon some nightmare scenario is going to happen. With help from our guest, Karen Cater, we're going beyond the buzzwords to get to the heart of these issues and what they mean for schools right now. You probably know Karen as the CEO of Digital Promise and former director of the Ed Department's Office of Educational Technology. But Karen was championing digital learning long before her days in the Obama administration, and in fact, even before the term digital learning was being thrown around, back when she was still a classroom teacher in Alaska. I had a chance to sit down with Karen a couple weeks ago at the EdSearch Fusion Conference. Karen is weighing a lot of different questions about EdTech these days, but she says that this issue of automation in particular has been on her mind. What responsibility do K-12 schools have in preparing today's students for a future none of us can really even envision yet? And how can educators make sure that automation doesn't disproportionately affect students who are already disadvantaged? the way so many existing technologies do. We'll be discussing those questions and more right after this. This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge webinar, How Social-Emotional Learning Really Affects Students. On October 30th, join EdSurge for a panel discussion on how SEL affects students inside and outside the classroom. Register now at bit.ly slash real SEL. Karen, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, Karen, we're here at EdSurge Fusion, listening and learning about a range of ideas. One thing that's come up a few times and something you actually presented about is the rise of automation and artificial intelligence and how both will affect our current students' job prospects in the not-too-distant future. Can you start by just explaining what we know about this so far? So there's a lot that people can read and understand about artificial intelligence and automation and the role that machines have on our lives. There is technology all around us. So you hear about uh, robots helping manufacture cars. In fact, uh, Elon Musk at Tesla earlier this year reported that, you know, there were too many robots. They had gone too far with automation. So this is not just a a straight line on into the future where everything becomes automated and artificial intelligence takes over our lives. There are a lot of like tests and and starts and stops and people are adjusting as they try things. But advanced manufacturing is definitely one area that automation is kind of taking over. Another interesting area is healthcare. So if we think about the role of artificial intelligence being able to better diagnose what's happening, help doctors really understand what's happening and connect dots that they may not have just connected on their own, that's incredibly helpful. We hear about machines being able to read x-rays, right? But the machine reader is not going to be able to present those results with empathy, Right, So we think a lot in this whole world of automation and artificial intelligence about the differences between what the machines will be able to do and what the machines can do and what is uniquely human. So a lot of people say, and I think you're among them, um, that by 2030, when our current kindergartners are high school graduates, automation will have phased out many career paths that are available today. 
But then there's another camp of people, a smaller camp, who say, don't listen to that. They're just fear-mongering. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, what do you say to people who doubt the research about automation and what risk do we run by not taking that seriously? Yes, really, really interesting to think about. A lot of people are worried that automation and artificial intelligence will take away jobs. So some of the research by the McKinley Global Institute says that by 2030, the transitions will be challenging, the transitions to different kinds of jobs. So there will be enough jobs open, with, is what this particular research says, but that the transitions and the kinds of jobs will be challenging, and it will be much like the transition out of agriculture. So if you think back on what happened in the transition um, out of agriculture or out of manufacturing, that's what we're looking at. So the kinds of skills that people need are changing. And we've been thinking about this for a long time, right? We've been thinking about, you know, way back in the 90s when, you know, with 21st century skills or the skills that kids need to be productive in the workforce, critical thinking, problem solving, communication, collaboration, creativity, innovation, financial literacy. Like there are a lot of things that we know that people need, but now it's really an imperative, the, the world is changing. The actual jobs that will be available are ones that you do need a different kind of education for. And that's what we need to pay attention to. And so if we didn't pay attention to this, if we listened to the people who said automation isn't going to take these jobs away, um, you know, what happens when we reach that transition and we are missing some of these jobs? It's interesting to think about what happens. And I think one of the things we're seeing even happen now is this focus on workforce development. People who are in the workforce that need to transition their own skills, their particular job is going away as they're in it, right? As they speak, you know, automation and different things are taking over. So I think what we need to do is it's a missed opportunity if we can't transition K-12 education. Because if we don't transition K-12 education, if we keep it kind of the same status quo, what will happen is we'll have to invest much more on the back end after high school in higher education, in the workforce. There will be a lot of job retraining needing to happen then. So our opportunity is to really take this seriously and redesign our schools and maybe in particular our middle schools, high schools, redesign those so that we are having much stronger emphasis on the kinds of skills, again, that are uniquely human. So, you know, a lot of this talking about how jobs will change is framed from the student perspective, but obviously, and you just touched on it, part of the equation here is the educators. Educators have a responsibility to teach students these skills that aren't going to go out of style and that no machine can replicate. That's a pretty tall order. So how do we help educators deliver? So the biggest challenge here is that we're asking educators to do something that isn't like their own learning experience, right? So we sometimes say teachers have 15,000 hours of muscle memory about what it feels like to be a student, to be in a classroom. They just went through K-12 education. They went through college. And now they're in a classroom. They're a teacher. And so they have this feeling about what it is to be a teacher. And some of the transitions in what it means to be a teacher cause them to do something that may not be comfortable, that may not be something they have experience with. So I think some of the some of the opportunities are, you know, developing a whole cadre of coaches that can work with teachers in their classroom, right? So that's some of the most helpful professional development that we know of is classroom coaching, someone who can roll up their sleeves along with the teacher 
figure out, you know, if they want to try something new, um, they have sort of a, a partner to try this with, a co-teacher uh, to try this with. So it's, it's a lot of uh, professional development. I think we also can leverage the power of uh, communication technologies. We can create videos. We can create open education resources and publish them online for people to access and use. We can connect people online with communities of practice, with uh, experts, with people who can also coach teachers through these kinds of transitions and as they're trying to engage students in um, new kinds of learning experiences. So we know that there are a lot of ways that existing technology further marginalizes students who were already at a disadvantage. How can we make sure that doesn't happen with automation and the changing landscape of the workforce? Equity is a huge topic. How we are able to ensure that all students, and especially focusing on underrepresented, marginalized students, have the best possible opportunities is something that it takes everyone to consider every single day. Um, Sometimes it feels a little bit easier to create these more innovative and interesting and deeper learning environments with students who may have lots of support at home, where they already have a lot of social capital. They have experts they can reach out to. Their parents can help them. There are some advantages of all of those things. But what we absolutely have to do is make sure that we figure out how to create these learning opportunities for students who are in schools that may not have all of those advantages. Right, So making sure that schools are fully connected to broadband, making sure that students have devices that they can use inside of school and outside of school so that they have the opportunities to do their homework, do their research, find ways of solving challenges, that their assignments can be as big and compelling as other students who already have those kinds of advantages. So it is imperative that all students have access to these kinds of rich learning opportunities so that they too have great prospects for a productive future. So how do we make that happen? That's a hard, hard question. How we ensure um, equity is something that everybody needs to pay attention to. One of the things that we've been thinking a lot about is this notion of inclusive innovation. You know, I spent 12 years at Apple. I've been with technology as long as I've been in my teaching career and spent lots of time talking about innovation. And I know that many times innovations have benefited certain populations more than others. So now we're trying to think about how do we think about inclusive innovation? So inclusive innovation means that we are solving challenges with the people that the solution is for. So if we have a challenge with perhaps, you know, we have homeless children that are coming to school, we include them, we ask them what kinds of things would be helpful for you? What are the what are those solutions? Because the population of people in the school that are not homeless may not think of the fact, you know, what we really need is a laundromat. We wish we had a place to wash our clothes. And that that is a that is in fact an innovation, you know, really when you think about it. It's something that solves a challenge and it can be scaled up. That is something that's very possible to to work with. The second thing is thinking about is making sure that everybody can participate and benefit from an innovation. 
using a completely different example, if you're creating maker spaces in your school, right, and maker spaces are kind of known to engage that design thinking, engage kind of a, a mentality of creating something that, that solves a, a problem, right? So the whole kind of maker uh, mentality is something that is, as we say, uniquely human, right? That notion of creating something and solving something. So if you think about a makerspace, you could create a makerspace and put it in your library and only some students would get to access that makerspace. Or you could have it be an elective class and only some students would get to access that makerspace. Or maybe you have some enterprising teachers and they have figured out how to create a makerspace in their classroom. So that's a great innovation and it's fantastic for those students who get to participate. But the next step that school leaders should take is to say, okay, this is an innovation, but how do we make sure that many, many people can participate? If it's good, if it's innovative, if it solves the challenge, then let's scale it up and make sure there's broad participation and especially amongst underrepresented, marginalized, and maybe students that otherwise would not have had access. At Digital Promise, you work with a lot of schools and school leaders. I'm wondering if you can think of an example of a district that maybe is already on the right track here, that is preparing students for the workforce of 2030, whatever that may look like. So across the League of Innovative Schools, there are many innovations happening. There are, you know, everything from computational thinking pathways for all students K-12. There are many, many makerspaces across the League of Innovative Schools. There are coding academies, coding initiatives, ways that people can kind of engage in these kinds of things. There are peer coaching initiatives. You know, I could sort of go on and on. There are many ways that people are solving challenges. So I think these are great sort of beacons or lights that we can focus on and follow. And I think that also within the League of Innovative Schools, we can work with and across the league to make sure that these innovations are, in fact, inclusive and they are broadening participation. So, yeah, there are a lot of examples, and we are actually in the process of designing and developing innovation portfolios so that we can do a better job of publishing out those kinds of innovations that are happening across the League of Innovative Schools. Awesome. So beyond automation and AI, what else are you thinking about, whether it's a, in your work at Digital Promise or from your experience at Fusion this year? So one of the things I'm thinking a lot about, and I'm not alone in this, is how we can advance research and development with respect to education and technology much more rapidly and more with a more focused trajectory. So there are lots of startups, right? So lots of ideas that are kind of coming to fruition. And every one of those startups kind of has the same challenge of setting up an organization, getting their HR in place, managing, you know, raising money to do their work, etc. What I'm really excited about and thinking a lot about are how can we get, especially big funders, to fund advanced R&D, right, or directed development. So take a challenge like mathematics, like expanding people's opportunity to collaborate across borders, or, you know, take any grand challenge. There are many, many challenges in education. Take literacy, you know, getting everybody to read by fourth grade. Is there a way that we can combine the best that neuroscience has to offer, the best, you know, cognitive scientists, all of the learning sciences, connect all of that with emerging technologies and begin to purposefully put these things together to solve a challenge. That's a, you know, something that people are working on now. And I, I think that it is 
worthy of as much uh, effort and resource that we can uh, that we can muster. All right. Well, Karen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks very much, Emily. This has been the Ed Surge on Air podcast. Each week, we feature conversations like this one. So please subscribe to keep up with future episodes. And you can support the show by taking a minute to tell us how we're doing with a rating or review. This episode was edited by me, Emily Tate, and produced by Jeff Young. Special thanks this week to Chris Hattori. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 